The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Father, we would um, ask that of you right now to speak uh, to us. Speak to us in our needs. Speak to us with our questions, with our fears. Speak into our individual situations. Tell us of your love. Tell us of the hope that we have in Jesus. It's kind of awesome to think about the fact that you can speak to every one of us in this room, individually, in a very personal and unique and specific way. You know us that well. So thank you for that. And we invite you to speak to us right now. And God, help us to be attentive to the words that you would speak. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. How you doing, church? Doing good? All right, ready for the word? All right, well, we... um, are starting a new series called Out of the Depths, uh, Praying the Psalms. We're excited to be spending the next uh, 10 weeks looking at select psalms, and uh, I want us all to be kind of ready for this and to maximize uh, this series. Uh, Last week, we gave out these promo cards for this series. On the back is the schedule. If you want one of those, some of those are still available um, at the back of the room, and you can grab one on the way out, put that on your fridge or in your Bible to remind you of what's coming up, and The content of that card is also available on our resource page on our website, harvestberry.ca slash psalms, and you're going to find a number of things there that are going to be very uh, helpful to you. I'll talk about some of those in a few moments, uh, some of those things, but I'm uh, grateful for a great website that has lots of resources so you can get into it and really make sure that this series is high impact uh, in your own life, not just about what I'm doing right here, but about uh, all the different things that we're putting in front of you uh, during this series. So take advantage of all of that, uh, please. All right, maybe you've, uh, maybe you've heard of this before, this line. Maybe you've even spoken this line yourself before. I just want someone to listen to me. I just want someone to listen to me. Now, I, I would get the idea that that would be something that's said often in marriage counseling. And uh, perhaps uh, it's spoken to about politicians, you know, voters. I just want a politician to listen to me. Or maybe employees are saying it about their uh, bosses, about their employers. I just wish my boss would listen to me. That question really is the cry of the lonely and the misunderstood and the hurting. I just wish someone would listen to me. And as I was thinking about this, I I came across this video, U2's frontman Bono, I don't know how many U2 fans we have here, uh, but he um, he did a series of interviews or an interview with a theology professor and he was asked this question about the Psalms. What's one thing that you've learned about God through your reading of the Psalms? Bono's reply was, he listens. He listens. It's a gift from God to us. 
that we can express to him our frustrations, our longings, even our anger to him. It's a gift from God to us that we can tell him about our heartaches and our sorrows. And yes, even our happy times and the joyful things that are happening in our lives. God listens to us. And not only does he listen to us, in his word, he has given us poems and songs, prayers, inspired by God, but coming from the heart of human beings. Words that we can express back to him in prayer, in our conversations with him. Words, songs, prayers, poems that express our emotions and our experiences to him. In fact, in Psalm 130 verses 1 and 2, where the series title comes from, out of the depths, the psalmist says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And in two lines... He captures the essence of the book of Psalms. You can cry out from the depth of your being knowing God listens. And so over these 10 weeks, we're going to be examining 10 Psalms as a means of improving our prayer life. And we're going to be given permission. You're going to see this. We're going to be given permission to say some very real and raw things to God. And along the way, this is what's so important, along the way, we're going to hear him say some things back to us that's going to help us put it all into perspective. Truths about him, truths about what it means to be a child of God. And so as a, as a way to kind of set up this series and help you understand the Psalms more, I came across these videos that do introductions to all of the books of the Bible, and I thought it'd be super helpful for us right now to get a great sense of what the Psalms are all about. If you feel like the book's a bit mysterious still, I think this is going to put it into perspective, so give your attention to the screen for a few minutes. The book of Psalms, it's a collection of 150 ancient Hebrew poems, songs, and prayers that come from all different periods in Israel's history. Many of these poems are connected with King David, 73, actually, and he was known as a poet and a harp player. But there are many different authors behind these poems. There's the poems of Asaph, or from the sons of Korah, and some are from other worship leaders in the temple. Even Solomon and Moses have their own poems, and nearly one-third of these are anonymous. Now, many of these poems came to be used by the choirs that sang in Israel's temple, but the Book of Psalms is actually not a hymn book. At some point in the period after Israel's exile to Babylon, these ancient poems were gathered together and intentionally arranged into the book of Psalms before us. And it has a very unique design and message that you're not going to notice unless you read it from beginning to end. Now to see how the book of Psalms is designed, it's actually most helpful to start at the end. The book concludes with five poems of praise to the God of Israel, and each one begins and ends with the word hallelujah, which is Hebrew for a command to tell a group of people to praise 
Yah, which is short for the divine name Yahweh. Now, that's a really nice five-part arrangement, and it looks like someone's giving us a conclusion here to the book. So it invites the question, does the book have any other signs of intentional design? If you pay attention to the headings of the poems, you'll notice that at five places, your Bible translators have the heading book one, book two, book three, four, and five at various points, and that these divide the book into five large sections. Now, the reason for this is that the final poem in each of those sections have a very similar ending that looks like an editorial edition. It reads something like, May the Lord, the God of Israel, be blessed forever and ever. Amen and amen. So the book has a conclusion. It has an internal organization into five main parts. And so the natural place to go from here is now the beginning, to look for an introduction. And what do we find? Psalms 1 and 2, which stand outside of book 1 because most of the poems in book 1 are linked to David, except Psalms 1 and 2, which are anonymous. Psalm 1 celebrates how blessed the person is who meditates on the Torah, prayerfully reading it day and night and then obeying it. Now, the word Torah simply means teaching, and more specifically, it came to refer to the five books of Moses that begin the Old Testament. And here, actually, the word seems to be used with both meanings in mind, which explains why it has five main parts. The book of Psalms is being offered as a new Torah that will teach God's people the lifelong practice of prayer as they strive to obey God's commands given in the first Torah. Psalm 2 is a poetic reflection on God's promise to King David from 2 Samuel chapter 7, that one day a messianic king would come and establish God's kingdom over the world, defeat evil and rebellion among the nations. Now Psalm 2 concludes by saying that all those who take refuge in the messianic king will be blessed, precisely the word used to open Psalm 1. And so together, these two poems tell us that the book of Psalms is designed to be the prayer book of God's people as they strive to be faithful to the commands of the Torah as they hope and wait for the future messianic kingdom. Now with these two themes introduced, we can start to see how the smaller books have been designed as well around these two ideas. So for example, book one has right at the center a collection of poems, Psalms 15 through 24, that opens and closes with a call to covenant faithfulness. And then, Psalm 16 to 18, we find a depiction of David as a model of this kind of faithfulness. So he calls out to God to deliver him, and God elevates him as king. Now, in the corresponding set of poems, Psalms 20 to 23, the David of the past has become an image of the messianic king of the future, who will also call out to God, he will be delivered, and then given a kingdom over the nations. And then right at the center of this collection is a poem, Psalm 19, dedicated to praising God for the Torah. So here we go. The two themes from Psalms 1 and 2 are bound together tightly here. Book 2 opens with two poems that are united in their hope for a future return to the temple in Zion. And this is an image closely associated with the hope of the Messianic kingdom. Then book 2 closes with a poem that depicts the future reign of the Messianic king over all of the nations. This poem's really amazing because it echoes all these other passages from the prophets about the messianic kingdom. And it concludes by saying that this king's reign will bring about the fulfillment of God's ancient promise to Abraham to bring God's blessing to all of the nations. 
Book three also concludes with a poem reflecting on God's promise to David, but this time in light of Israel's exile. So the poet remembers how God said he would never abandon the line of David. But now he's looking at Israel's rebellion and its result in destruction and exile and the downfall of the line of David. And so the poet ends by asking God to never forget his promise to David. Book four is designed to respond to this crisis of exile. So the opening poem returns us back to Israel's roots with a prayer of Moses. And he does what he did on Mount Sinai after the golden calf incident, which is to call upon God to show mercy. The center of book four is dominated by a group of poems that announce that the Lord, the God of Israel, reigns as the true king of the world, and that all creation, trees, mountains, rivers, are all summoned to celebrate that future day when God will bring his justice and kingdom over all the world. Book five opens with a series of poems that affirm that God hears the cries of his people and will one day send the future king to defeat evil and bring God's kingdom. This book also contains two larger collections, one called the Hollow and the other called the Songs of Ascents. Each one of these collections concludes with a poem about the future messianic kingdom. And these two collections together, they sustain the hope for a future Exodus-like act of God to redeem his people. And then, right between them is Psalm 119. It's the longest poem in the book. It's an alphabet poem. Each line begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it explores the wonder and the gift of the Torah as God's word to his people. So here we go. The themes from Psalm 1 and 2, Torah and Messiah, combine all together here in book 5, which brings us all the way back to that five-poem conclusion. In the center poem, Psalm 148, all creation is summoned to praise the God of Israel because he he has, quote, raised up a horn for his people. Now the horn here, it's a metaphor of a bull's horn raised in victory. And this image echoes back to the same image used in Hannah's song for Samuel chapter 2, but also to the earlier Psalm 132. The horn is a symbol for the future messianic king and his victory over evil. It's a fitting conclusion to this amazing book. Now, here's one more thing that you are likely going to miss if you don't read this book in order. There's lots of different kinds of poems in the book of Psalms, but they all basically fall into two big categories, either poems of lament or poems of praise. Poems of lament express pain, confusion, and anger about how horrible the world is and how horrible the things are happening to the poet. And so these poems draw attention to what's wrong in the world, and they ask God to do something about it. There's a lot of these in the book, which tells us something important, that lament is an appropriate response to the evil that we see in our world. But what you'll notice is that lament poems predominate earlier in the book, in books one through three. But pay attention, because you'll see praise poems occasionally too. Praise poems are poems of joy and celebration, and they draw attention to what's good in the world, and they retell stories of what God has done in our lives and thank God for it. In books four and five, you'll notice that praise poems come to outnumber lament poems, and it all culminates in that five-part hallelujah conclusion. So this shift from lament to praise, this is profound, and it tells us something about the nature of prayer. As we hope for the messianic kingdom, as the book teaches us to do, this will create tension for us as we look out on the tragic state of our world and of our lives. And so the Psalms teach us not to ignore the pain of our lives, but at the same time, biblical faith is forward-looking, looking to the promise of God's future messianic kingdom. And so Torah and Messiah, lament and praise, faith and hope. 
That's what the book of Psalms is all about. Helpful. Well, uh, those videos exist for, um, if not all of the Bible, a good portion of it. And uh, that resource will be embedded with this uh, message video. Plus, it'll be broken out separately in the resource center uh, section on the website. And we're going to do a screenshot of that last frame uh, so that you can have the whole thing kind of in your mind as well. Uh, that's all going to be on the website. And we're going to get a start, a great place to start in a study of the Psalms. And with the introductory Psalm, as we just saw it, is Psalm 1. So that's where we're going to be uh, right now. Uh, this is the introduction to the entire book, along with Psalm 2. It's generally classified as a wisdom psalm. And the curious thing about this is, he, it's, this is a message, this is really a series on prayer, but this first psalm is not written as such, really, because it's an introduction, and it speaks of the wisdom we need rooted in the Word of God in order to get the blessing that I believe we all want. And so let me read the psalm, and then we'll begin uh, unpacking these verses. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. All right, God's blessing flows from attentiveness to his wisdom and obedience to his ways. Now, before we get into the text, I think you know this, this maxim, this, um, this little proverb. It's not about the circumstances, but about your reaction to the circumstances. Have you heard that before? It's not about the circumstances. It's about your reaction to the circumstances. And in Psalm 1, what we have, it's setting us up for all the difficult circumstances of life that we're going to explore in the book of Psalms. And a choice is being put in front of us with this very first psalm. When, not if, but when you face difficulties and dilemmas in life, how will you react? Will you react wisely? Will you react foolishly? Will you react as a believer? Will you react as an unbeliever? Will you follow God's ways or will you follow the world's ways? It's a choice. And it really comes down to who and what you believe in. And that's what's in front of us as we start uh, working through the Psalms. And so we're going to get a choice here. You can choose one way to live or another. Let's look at it. Choose, first of all, to pursue his blessing or not. That's a choice that you can make. To pursue the blessing of God or not to have the blessing of God. And you can see the contrast coming out right away in Psalm 1. He starts with, blessed is the man. Blessed is the one. We're not going to get hung up on the gender here. It refers to everyone. Blessed is the one. Versus, look at now down to verse 4, versus the wicked are not so. The, 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 the wicked, King James Version just uses ungodly here. It's just referring to an unbeliever. This is a contrast between someone who believes and someone who doesn't. And so you're going to face a decision right now. Am I a believer or not a believer? But I think even beyond that, as we read this, because I believe this room has mostly people who are professing faith in Christ, 
it's also going to be kind of a wake-up call, a reminder to us to ask the question, am I acting like a believer? Is this really the way that I'm living my life? It's an appeal for believers to act like believers because a blessed person, notice now the rest of verse 1, what are the characteristics of this blessed person? Walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of, of scoffers. And so those who desire God's blessing in their lives will not get on this threefold downward spiral down to the bottom where I'm, I'm so far removed from the blessing of God. I don't want to go down that road. It's no place for those who would count themselves as, as blessed and as believers. So you're not going to listen to what the world says. That's the walking. You're, you, when you're walking with the world, you're kind of listening to what the world is saying. He uses the metaphor of walking with the world. And then, and then he goes on. It, it gets a little bit ser more serious here where he says... Um, you're not going to linger in that place. You're not standing. So now it's not, I'm not walking with them, but I'm, I'm standing. And now I'm really lingering. I'm thinking hard about the thing that I've heard. The, what the world is communicating to me. And then, and then it goes all the way here to commitment. I'm not, I shouldn't listen to it. I shouldn't linger in it. I'm not going to commit to it. But in the final frame, he sits in the seat of scoffers. That means he's decided. Uh, this is where I'm going to remain. I, I now agree with this. This is now my philosophy of life. This is how I'm going to live, and I'm sitting in this place. I've committed to staking out this particular ground, and none of that is going to help you be blessed of God or to live the life of a believer. And you know, the temptation as we enter into this study of Psalms, and we're going to find a way to navigate through life's complexities because life is complex. The temptation is that we give ourselves over to emotion and experience. That we let emotion and experience lead us. And, and really when, we, when we're thinking about ungodly counsel, wicked counsel, the world's counsel, when we think about that, isn't that the core of what the world tells us? Of all the different philosophies and beliefs that I could talk to you about that are worldly, the one is, that, that's most insidious and affects us most easily, even when we're believers, is that we are the center of the universe. And that's where emotion and experience start to play. Because, tell me you haven't heard this before, your feelings really matter. Okay? Your emotions count. Let your feelings guide you. Follow your heart. In your experiences, no one can dispute your experiences, what you've gone through. That molds who you are. And yes, that's true to an extent, but only for those of us who are believers, only as God informs that. If your experiences dictate how you live, then everything's subjective. And I can't argue with your experiences. And God doesn't get to frame any of that up because I'm the center of the universe. I'm the center of my own decisions and lifestyle. I'm the standard. That's all that matters. That's the ungodly counsel that we need to be careful of as we go into these psalms where God is giving us liberty to express emotions and experiences to him. 
see, we need to really understand that as we do this, as God hears us out, that he wants to guide us into the truth about these things. That, that he wants us to grieve, for example. He wants us to feel sorrow and to express that to him when we, when we face losses of all kinds. But having said that, what can often happen with our experiences and our emotion is then that descends into self-pity and oh, woe is me and I become paralyzed by my sorrows and God doesn't want us to stay there. Yes, express your sorrow, but don't stay there. You see how this works? Or, or God wants us to acknowledge our sin. Some people uh, bear this um, in a way that's really burdensome to them and they know they sin and they feel the weight of it constantly and God wants us to feel that and he wants us to confess our sins to him. He wants us to pour out tears over our own wretchedness but he doesn't want us to be self-loathing because he wants us to understand our value as sons and daughters of his. God even gives us permission to shake our fist at him. To, to question him directly about injustices and things we don't understand and trials that have come our way. But he doesn't want us to do that without having the right perspective on who he is as the sovereign king and the Lord of our lives. You see, when we let emotions and experience drive us, we stay in the wrong place. We're self-pitying, we're self-loathing, and we're angry at God. And we can't be the measure of these things. We need to let him speak into our lives. And so right now, you get to choose his blessing or not. And if you would say, I'm ready uh, to choose blessing and I want that in my life, then this uh, follows uh, pretty closely on the heels of that, uh, choose to love his word or not. Choose to love his word or not. You see, the blessed one finds that, verse two now, the blessed one, his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, when it speaks of the law, and the video pointed this out very clearly, um, when he's speaking of the law here, he's talking about the Torah or the first five books of the Hebrew Bible uh, the books of Moses, for, for us, that's what they were thinking at the time the psalm was written, but for us, of course, 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books of the New Testament, that forms the word of God to us. And so as we read this word, the law, we're thinking about the scriptures, we're thinking about the whole package of it, and we need to have the same delight in the word of God that the psalmist is saying all of us need to have for the Torah. We need to delight in God's word. We think about this, I think about other examples. There's so many places I could have gone where people are delighting in the word of God and allowing it to transform their lives. But I thought about Joshua because it sounds so much like Psalm 1. Joshua 1.8, Joshua's being commissioned to lead the people of God and God says to him, this book of the law, the, so the scriptures, the Bible, should not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you might be careful to do according to all that is written in, in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. You want to be blessed? You want to be prosperous? You want to be successful? Get into the word of God, meditate on this, and then, notice what he says, be careful to do everything that's written therein. Let this book transform your life. 
delight in it, spend time in it. And so really to the extent that you read the word of God, to the extent that you study the word of God, to the extent that you meditate on the word of God and think about it, to the extent that you would even memorize it, to the extent that you would sit under the teaching of God's word as you are right now. You see, that's going to dictate whether or not you're going to be blessed or not. Do you love his word? It's going to dictate whether you'll prosper or not, whether you'll be successful or not in this life and beyond. You see, either we believe that, and this is what the the preacher in Hebrews said, either we believe that the word of God is living living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of of, uh, joints and marrow and soul and spirit, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart, either we believe that, or we believe that ungodly counsel, the world's counsel, is right. That that's what I need to be listening to and that's what has the answers for me. Either the word of God is at the center or I'm at the center of all of this. Is the word of God worth listening to? Is it living and active? Does it pierce to the very depth of who I am? Does it discern, show me, the thoughts and intentions of my own heart? Does it not direct me in the right path? That's what the preacher in Hebrews is saying. And so, if we're gonna choose blessing, if we're gonna choose to love his word, then we're gonna be aligning ourselves with what God's word says and we'll be seeking prosperity and success by meditating on his word because the creator said some things about the creation, about us and about the world we live in and how to navigate the complexities of this and we need to hear him out. You know, I read this week a post and it's been doing the rounds I think on Facebook but um, it's an article on progressive Christianity and how it's affecting parenting today. And um, these are, these are progressive Christianity is, is professing Christians who are in supposed uh, churches, Bible-believing churches, but they are rejecting the harder things that the Bible says. We kind of hinted at this in a different message a few months ago, but um, you know, this is where um, we, we want to be so sensitive to our kids and we don't want them to see anything bad or evil and know how hard things are. We don't want to put anything too grotesque in front of them. And so we're not going to teach them about the sacrifice of Jesus. We're not going to teach them about the crucifixion. We're certainly not going to tell them that it was actually the father's intention to sacrifice his son and have him murdered. Why would you tell a child that? Well, maybe because it's at the core of how we get saved. Maybe we're going to tell our children that as as hard as that is to hear because that's the only way we come back into a relationship with Christ and have our sins forgiven. But there are those who are professing Christians, progressive Christians who are saying, that's too hard. That's too hard. But it's at the core of who we are as the followers of Jesus Christ. And so undermining undermining parts of the Bible or picking and choosing our way through the Bible, that's not going to help us. I only want the easy parts. I like the parts where God tells us he loves us. I don't want to talk about judgment and wrath. I don't want to hear about sacrifice. I don't want to hear about the hard part. Give me a sentimental Christianity. 
Give me something that makes me feel good. Not something that challenges me. Well, we don't really get that option. If we want to be blessed. See, Paul said in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, just the first line of um, what he said here about the word of God to Timothy, but um, all scripture is God-breathed. All of it. All scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable to us in every part of our lives to bring about the blessing that I believe we want from God. And so back to verse two, if all of that is true, then we must delight in the word of God. And when you delight in this way, okay, this is like the word of God is so delightful, I don't find it hard to delight in the word of God. That it is intrinsically attractive to me and beautiful and I want to be in the word of God. That's what's packed into that word delight. That I want to spend time in the word because the word of God actually has what I need and I see that. And if all of that is true, if you see the word of God in that way, when you love something in this way, you want to spend time with that something. So, How's that going for you? Is it okay if I poke you? You say, that's why I've come. Let me poke you. Some of you haven't had the Bible open since you were here last weekend and got the Bible open for this time. And I wonder how you might be able to say that you delight in the word if it remained closed for the last seven days. So, so rather than feel guilty about that, let's just make a determination about it. Because here we are again with an opportunity as the followers of Christ to delight in the word of God again. So this is a perfect opportunity to reset, to kind of reboot our delight for the word of God and to get some things in place. And so we've actually kind of helped you with this right now. If it's not going so great, if it's so-so right now, uh, then uh, the first thing we've done is we've put a reading plan for the Psalms over the next 10 weeks. And you can go onto the website, resource page we've created, and you can see the reading plan there. And if you want, you can sign up for text notifications right there on the website, and we'll send... Uh, to your cell phone, we'll send you a reminder about the reading for this week. Just get into God's Word. Download a Bible app and read it right on, right on your smartphones. And so that's one way. You can just, in the, over the next 10 weeks, you're going to read all 150 Psalms. So that's, that's one thing for sure that you can do. Uh, secondly, um, we have this uh, great resource in the Resource Center. And if you want to go just a little deeper on this, this is a devotional psalter that's put out by the publishers of the ESV. And so this beautiful book has uh, the psalm in it, and then it has a devotional with each one of the psalms. If you're looking for something for your devotional time that will direct you through this time, then you can pick up one of these in the, in the Resource Center. That might be uh, helpful to you. And then if you want to go even a little further into this, uh, we're going to memorize the eight verses of Psalm 130 during this time period. If you want to join in that, again, Psalm 130 is on the webpage. And you know how much you delight in the Word of God is going to um, determine whether or not you are blessed in the way the psalmist is describing. God's blessings flow from attentiveness to His wisdom 
That's the Bible and obedience to his ways. All right? Next. Ready for the third one? Choose. Choose to produce good in life, to produce good in life or not. You get to choose that. Look at verse uh, 3 now. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, this is an agricultural uh, simile, a farm comparison. He tells the true believer, he tells us that the true believer produces a rich crop through their lives. In other words, good things happen in the life of a true believer and and through the life of a true believer in, in helping others and in, in, in the blessed person's life. Now notice what the condition is. If this is going to be you, the condition is that the tree is planted in a certain place. What does it say in the verse? The tree is planted by, by streams of water. And the implication is, I've had the opportunity to actually travel to Israel, and, and the implication is that this tree is planted in a very dry place. You see this? You would look at that and just go, I don't really think a tree could grow in a place like that. Because there doesn't seem to be any water source. There seems to be no way that a tree could be green and could thrive in a place like that. In fact, I don't even see the stream in the picture. Where's the stream? Where is it? It's subterranean. It's underground. It's, it's feeding the roots. And even though at the surface you look at it and you go, it's such a dry land. It's such a, a harsh and hostile environment. There doesn't seem to be any way that something living could thrive in such an environment. And yet there it is, the roots gaining moisture from groundwater. The secret is that stream, this unseen source of life-giving fruit producing water. That's what the wisdom of God does for you and me because we're living in a harsh and hostile environment that wars against those who would desire to be blessed by God. And on the surface, with all the harshness of life, it doesn't even make sense that anyone would survive this, let alone thrive. But there's an unseen source nourishing the roots of those who are blessed by God. And it's the word of God feeding us. Giving us life in the midst of devastating circumstances that wreck the lives of others. The believer taps into the life-giving word of God. And doesn't just survive but thrives. You know, I say, think about all of this. What's the fruit being produced? Because when we start talking about being blessed of God and we start talking about prosperity and using the word success and we, we can get a little squirrely when we start to hear these words because, because some believers start to think, you know what this is going to mean? This is going to mean that my life always goes the way I want it to go. That this is going to mean material prosperity. That this is going to mean I never have relational discord. That my life always comes up roses. And, and of course, does it mean that? It does not mean that. 
So what does it mean? What's the, what's the prosperity coming our way? What's the success? What does it mean to be blessed by God in this way? Well, the analogy is an agricultural one, and it's talking about fruit bearing. And so it isn't hard. I hope your mind is immediately going to Galatians 5, and 23, where we read about the fruit of the Spirit, the thing that's truly lasting that's being produced in our lives if we're truly a blessed person. You see what it says? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now listen, when you look at that list, you should be saying right now, that's what I need. I don't need more material blessing. I don't need less strife really even in my life. If I could have those things, that would be enough. That that's really the prize. I mean, I started thinking about this. If we could just have this, I think we solve all the marriage issues. I think we solve all the marriage issues if we have this. I mean, if a husband and a wife at the same time are both producing these fruit in their lives, we're not having any marriage issues. We're shutting down biblical soul care. Won't need it anymore. Parents, you wanna, you wanna talk about the thing you really need to give our kids? Well, I wanna make sure our kids have a good education. I wanna make sure they have a good home. I wanna make sure they have a good vacation every summer. I, I wanna make sure they're well-clothed and well-fed and they have good friends and live in a good neighborhood. That's not a bad list. But listen, if you wanna give your kids nine things that really count into eternity, that's the stuff you need to be giving your kids, the fruit of the Spirit. Make sure that's being built into their lives. See, that's, that's what it means to be blessed right there. When you have this fruit of the Spirit, you have everything. You have success. You are prosperous. You are blessed of God. These are the words of life. This is, this, this is what we get when we tap into that underground water source, the living Word of God. Do you remember in John 6... The, the, Jesus was teaching some very hard things about himself and about what it meant to follow him and a bunch of people who were kind of tagging along and following him had decided we're not gonna follow him anymore and they turned back and went away and Jesus turned to his closest followers and he said to his disciples, are you gonna leave too? And in John six sixty eight, you know what they said? To whom shall we go? You have the words of, of life. These are the words of life. This is what we have to be going after as the followers of Jesus Christ if we truly want to be blessed. But then notice verse four, again the contrast, you get to choose this or not. Choose to produce good things in your life or not. Verse four, the wicked, the ungodly, the unbelievers are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now this is the way that they would separate. They would take the wheat that they had harvested and they would throw it. This is ancient times. They would throw it up into the air and the wind would blow the chaff away and the grain would fall back down to the ground and they would have the thing that's of value. They would have the grain, the chaff that it was of no value. The wind, as it says in the verse, the wind just blew it away. We do this in a more modern way today. We get a combine to go through the field. I, I, um, I called a farmer who was part of our church yesterday to confirm the facts. I just want to make sure I didn't get this wrong. The combine goes through the field and, and the, the grain goes into the combine and it's separated. And, and the grain, just the grain, 
goes through the, the, the um, onloader, offloader, it goes through and into the, the cart being pulled by the tractor. Just the grain goes there. The good stuff goes into the, into the trailer. Out the back comes the chaff and just gets tossed on the ground. It's of no value. What do you want to be? Do you want to be the grain that has value? Do you want to be the chaff that's just being expelled out the back of the combine or blown away by the wind? The grain is what you want to be. Because that's what has eternal value. That's what God is driving towards here. And you might be successful in the eyes of the world. You might be campaigning for things and working on projects that only impact in this life. But the followers of Jesus Christ are to have a much longer view of things, an eternal view of things. And so work to produce good in life, fruit that is eternal. And then finally this, one final choice we need to make to be known by God or not. Now this really gets right down to it, in fact. This is the first decision we would have to make. But let me ask you, are you confident that you are known by God? I mean, does he, does he really know you? Now, I, I get that God knows everything, so I get that if God really showed up in a, in a manifest way here this morning and we were able to talk to him, that he would know every one of our names. I'm confident of that. We're not just talking about familiarity or, or awareness or facts about us. That's not what he means here by knowledge. When the psalmist says in verse six, you see it, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He knows those who are walking with him. Really what he's talking about here, and Franz Delich said this, this is a knowledge which was in living, intimate relationship to its subject and at the same time was inclined to it and bound to it by love. That's the kind of knowledge we're talking about, not just awareness. This is close, intimate, personal relationship with God. Not just awareness, but bound to him by his love. And, and confirmed to us by the giving of his son to die for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. John 3, 16. Or Romans 5, 8. God commended his love toward us in, in, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Confirmed, God's love confirmed by the giving of his son as a sacrifice for us. And then sealed, Jesus departing this earth sent the Holy Spirit to seal us for that final day of salvation. God knows us. And Jesus made it clear. John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. When, when Jesus saves you, he knows it for sure, but you know it too. I mean, I don't say this arrogantly at all. I don't I don't mean this to sound arrogant at all or overconfident at all. But I am so sure of my salvation. I remember the evening that I prayed to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. I remember what that moment was like. And all of these years, that was 15, I was 15 years old, all these years later, 
I've never wavered. Even at times when I've sunk into sin and I've really struggled and wandered away and there was a lot of that in the early years. I never didn't know that I wasn't still saved. That he didn't still have me. That he didn't still know me. And that's what always drew me back. I know I'm his. And, and nothing, nothing is going to change that. I know where I'm going to be for eternity. I know that no trial in this world is going to take me away. Because I'm his. He knows me. And I know him. I'm confident in being with him for eternity. And, and for some here, that's the choice you need to make today. To surrender your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ, to believe that he is your savior and your Lord. For others here, it's to start acting like a believer. If we want to be blessed and I want to follow God's counsel, his wisdom and his ways, and not the world's, not that of the ungodly, then I need to start looking and acting like someone who's blessed of God. The alternative, because again, this is a choice to be known by God or not, the alternative is devastating. Eternally so. Verse five, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. That doesn't mean they're not going to the judgment. They are in fact going to the judgment. But when they go there, they're not gonna be able to stand in the face of God. They will be ruined eternally because they failed to surrender themselves to Christ and find the forgiveness of sins from him. The wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. You're not gonna be with the righteous. But will instead, verse six says, perish, eternally perish, forever separated from God. Are you known by God or not? On March 25th, 2001, Cheryl and I uh, made the trip up to Barrie and um, I preached for the very first time here in Barrie at Harvest Bible Chapel. It was really several months before our official launch and we were just getting ready to move uh, to Chicago and the church was already meeting on Sunday mornings at the Sunnydale Community Center with a very attractive banner out front. And we went in and I don't know, there was maybe 50 or so people there that morning, some people who were there for the very, very first time and a core group of people who God was using to raise up Harvest Bible Chapel. And as the banner was hung outside, a, a woman who was fairly new to the city of Barrie was driving down Sunnydale Road on this Sunday morning and she saw this banner and she had been raised a Lutheran in Germany and she had emigrated to Canada and she turned into the parking lot because she didn't know what a Harvest Bible Chapel was. And she stepped out of our car and as she made her way to the door. She met a man who was part of our core group in those days. And she came up to him and she said, what are you harvesting? And he said, souls. And her curiosity was piqued even more. And she found out this was a church of some kind, though it was kind of outside of her framework of what that should look like. And she went in and she has been with our church ever since, more than 16 years. And along the way, she found the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and became a follower of his and a member of this church. 
And the thing about this woman, her name is Sonia Baumo, is that she told me and Roger this week about this story and how she found Christ here. Sonia's now moving to Brampton, but the thing I would say about Sonia more than anything else, through so many difficulties in her life, so many challenges, things that she's seen that are unimaginable to everyone in this room. If I could tell you the stories. And yet she is known by God. And when you talk to her, you know that she knows God and God knows her. And she never allowed the very difficult circumstances of her life to embitter her. She's one of the toughest women I've ever known. And she gives credit for all of her strength to the Lord Jesus Christ. She knows God. And God knows her. Do you have that same assurance? Are you known by God? Are you confident that you're known by God? Because God's blessing flows from attentiveness to his wisdom and obedience to his ways. I hope you have that. I hope you're blessed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers, for listening to us. Help us now, um, help those of us who are determined to live this way, who are choosing blessing, to pursue your blessing, to love your word, to produce good in our lives and to be known by you in a way that gives us such assurance. God, bless these next weeks as we spend time in this prayer book. Thank you for giving us permission to speak, for listening to us. Thank you for inspired words that are often rough and raw and very real. And help us to press in to receive all that you have for us as you speak back to us and speak into these things. And God, every step of the way, help us to choose well. Help us to choose life. Help us to choose blessing as we study these psalms together. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.